Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics, um, and it seems like we have tougher and tougher topics as the years go by. Today, though, we have a topic that is not only tough, but it's also hard to understand, at least for me. And so I'm hoping that our guest can help help me understand as well as all of us. Our guest is Dr. Gail Beck. And may I call you Gail, or do you want to be Dr. Beck? It's okay either way. Whatever is most comfortable for you. Okay, if you don't mind, I'll stick with Gail. And um, uh, Gail is a uh, Ph.D., and she's the Lillian and Maury Moss Chair of Excellence in Psychology at the University of Memphis. And her research has focused on the assessment and treatment of adult anxiety-based disorders with emphasis on post-trauma responses. And that's why we have her here today, because when there's trauma, um, there's all sorts of stuff that happens, and not just at the moment of trauma. There's all sorts of stuff that happens all the way down the road and long-term, and we've learned a lot about child um, trauma and how that impacts people down the road. But it's not just children, is it, Gail? It's it's everybody who's impacted by, by trauma, and not just temporarily. Am I right? You are right. And, you know, a recent epidemiological survey looked at, um, you know, how often people experience traumatic events. And let's step back for a minute and define what we mean by a traumatic event because, um, no offense to you, Heather, but uh, the popular media has taken the word trauma and just done all sorts of interesting things with it, um, which take <laughs> the meaning of the word far away from what um, mental health professionals talk about. So within the mental health domain, when we talk about a trauma, we talk about an event that involved um, either threatened death or death of someone else or a threat of serious injury or serious um, threat to what's called psychological integrity. So someone's saying, I'm going to kill you, for example, that qualifies. Um, and so when we think about, like, how often people in the United States experience trauma, it's most all of us, right? In, our, in the span of our lives, it's most all of us. So we think about things like car crashes or uh, people who are involved in uh, work accidents, for example, if they fall off a, a ladder, or people who are in a hurricane, or we've had a whole lot of flooding um, in the last 12 months in this country. So those types of events um, qualify, right, as, as Can I interrupt here and ask events. a question? Because you mm-hmm. mentioned the popular definition of trauma. That The popular definition, I think, people include things like divorce or death of a friend or family member. Are those things included in, in your psychological definition of trauma? 
Um, the larger mental health field does not conceptualize those kinds of events as traumas. We do recognize that those are highly stressful, um, mm-hmm. but I think that I think that in our thinking, and, and I think this is kind of important, that you know we see that traumas are both quantitatively and qualitatively different from highly stressful life events, and you know the perception of um, complete lack of control, uh, possibility of death, uh, possibility of being maimed. Those kinds of feelings are what set apart um, traumas from other kinds of stressful events like divorce and, you know, death of a parent and that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. So when we're talking, and let's uh, stick with that that, uh, psychological definition of trauma, um, I've got to ask this question as well. Um, when we say divorce, and we don't usually include that, when certainly when people uh, have experienced domestic violence or they're going through a, a domestic violence situation with a divorce, that would qualify because they have that lack of control and the possibility of, a, a very real possibility of death. Most women who are killed in domestic violence situations are killed when they're trying to leave. Um, so does that domestic violence thing kind of bridge the gap between the popular definition of stressful event and true trauma? Um, I don't necessarily think of it that way, but I do think that intimate partner violence and abuse or the larger category of domestic violence does um, is a form of trauma. And, you know, when we think about some of the specifics that go into intimate partner violence and abuse, you know, you point out the unfortunate fact that, you know, the woman's risk of being seriously hurt or or killed is the highest at the point that she's trying to leave the relationship. So IPV often includes uh, physical abuse, being hit, uh, shot, stabbed, kicked. Um, It includes emotional abuse, which many times does include threats to the woman's, you know, physical integrity or her life. I'll kill you. Um, I'm going to throw acid in your face. Or threats to her children. Or threats to her children, yes. And IPV also can include sexual abuse. So um, unconsented to sexual activity, um, whether or not it's in the context of a established romantic relationship is a form of sexual assault. So when we think about IPV, it does represent um, a form of trauma. Not The field hasn't necessarily conceptualized it that way uh, until probably, I would say, the last 10, 15 years. Okay. All right. Okay. So we've distinguished what we mean by true trauma as opposed to stressful life events, which we all experience. Do all of us experience trauma usually, or is that some? Uh, is there a certain part of the population that experiences the trauma as you've just defined it? How common is um, it? Good question. Um, by the time most of us hit middle age, we will have experienced one potentially traumatic event. So one of the things that I think is important to realize is that um, it's really captivating in this field because the experience of potentially traumatizing events is really pretty common, but most people don't go on to have um, 
negative emotional reactions that last for any length of time. So, you know, in the in the trauma world, we spend a lot of our time thinking about what kinds of processes increase the likelihood of, um, you know, negative negative emotional aftermath for especially for women because women are more likely to develop um, mental health issues following trauma exposure. Okay. So um, what, what we're talking about today is the impact of trauma, and a lot of that is mental health. And um, I know I, we were talking about this off air a while ago, that it seems like people who work in the field of domestic violence are really cautious about talking about mental health repercussions. And I think that's because women who are victims of domestic violence have been blamed for that. And if um, someone decides or if we talk about a, a woman having a mental health consequence, it's so easy to say, well, see, that's why she chose him or that's why that happened to her or that's, you know, it, it's easy to just kind of wrap it up as an individual uh, problem. At least that's how I interpret it. And it's been pretty difficult to actually have a conversation about mental health fallout for women who have experienced domestic violence. Is is that your experience as well? Um, yes, in a nutshell. I think that when we start to think about um, the emotional aftermath of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, that we need to be very careful. Um, and what I mean by that is we need to make sure that we use language that represents that domestic violence um, experience, which would have typically run for months or perhaps years in the woman's life, as a source of um, a tra- you know a traumatic event. Now, a traumatic event can take like two minutes in the form of a car crash, or it can take months or years in the form of you um, know partner violence and abuse or you know, racial cleansing in some countries that we're familiar with. So, you know, when we think about the aftermath of um, domestic violence, I think we need to be really clear that we acknowledge and bracket that women who have experienced domestic violence have experienced some really horrific kinds of events. Um, it makes it worse in some ways that those events are interpersonal. Um, you know, if you're sitting at a stoplight and somebody rear-ends you going 60 miles an hour, most people would not say, well, what'd you do to get asked for that? But when we're talking about, <laughs> right? But when we're yes, talking exactly. about, yeah, we're talking Why'd about relationship violence. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we're talking about relationship violence, all of a sudden there is this sort of implied um, responsibility that somehow she did something that, brought it on, or she picked wrong, or she had terrible judgment, or, you know, the the typical, well, why didn't you just leave, right? Mm-hmm. You know, after he hit you the first time, why didn't you just leave? And I think that many respects, those kinds of opinions show, um, I don't know, how little we really understand at a at a cultural level about what intimate partner violence is about. Um, and, you know... I think it's important to recognize up front that it's one approximately one in four women in the United States who at some point in their lives have or will experience intimate partner violence. So 
I think some of that lack of understanding, that lack of cultural understanding, really probably feeds into why our our prevalence rates are so high in this country. I, I think you're right. Well, let's get back to what happens after trauma, the impact of trauma. And is the impact, are, are the impacts, if I can use, I don't know if the impact can be uh, pluralized, but are the impacts similar across the board, or are there different impacts depending on the severity or type of, of trauma? What, what are we talking about when we're talking about the residual, the fallout from having experienced trauma? All good questions, all really good questions. Um, one of the things that we know from kind of taking a, a step back and looking at um, the scientific work in the trauma field is that most times uh, scientists are somewhat siloed. So if you study veterans, that's who you study. You don't necessarily study veterans and rape victims. So much of our literature hasn't done a lot of cross-trauma sample comparison. Um, so some of what's out there in chapters and that kind of thing, you know, says, well, geez, you know, these interpersonal traumas like domestic violence or child abuse are way worse than non-interpersonal traumas, things like a car crash or a work accident. Um I think that when we use words like way worse as scientists, we're doing ourselves a really disservice, a big disservice, because what does worse mean, right? You know, if there's, (laughs) right, there's events that are... Worse for you is, you know, worse for me might be not having any chocolate. Worse for you might be not having any (laughs) pasta sauce. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's all, it's all so different. Yeah. Right. So part of what we know... um, you know, I, I've sort of stepped out of the what's worse because I, I just don't see the utility in it. I think that in my mind, when I think about trauma survivors and I think about vulnerable populations that don't have a lot of uh, research that's done, I think about domestic violence survivors. And that was part of why I shifted my work about 10 years ago to start um you know, taking a much closer look at the mental health aftermath of intimate partner violence and abuse, Um, because this is a very, very vulnerable population, and it's a population that there isn't a lot of um, research on. There's some research on, typically, you know, that's done in shelters, for example, that looks at, you know, what what do women need in the immediate aftermath when they've left a, a violent partner? Uh, but it doesn't take kind of the longer view, like what happens then, right? What happens after she leaves the partner and, you know, finds safe housing and gets a job or whatever she needs to do to be able to support herself? You know, what are the what are the potential mental health aftermaths? And, and that's kind of where I wanted to start um, to expand our knowledge. Okay. So, uh, and you mentioned that you started looking into this about 10 years ago. What are some of the studies that you have completed? Um, There's a couple of things that we do in my lab. Um, I run a mental health research clinic for women who have experienced intimate partner violence and abuse. And we've been collecting, um, how do I say this, we provide free mental health assessments 
um, in exchange for women, you know, go providing research data for us. Um, sure. And so, you know, we've assessed, um, I would have to go look at exactly what number, but I think we're around close to 500 women um, okay. in the in the last 10 years. That may not sound like a lot of women, but I think it's important to realize that uh, women, domestic violence survivors, tend to be reluctant to seek help. Um, yeah. well. And they many times are, um, how do I say this? Many times women who have experienced domestic violence really feel a sense of powerlessness in their lives. And so the, okay, here's this service and it's free and it's on a college campus, which means, you know, it's a, it's not somebody hanging up a shingle saying, I'm an expert that may not be. Um, but it takes a lot of women quite a while to sort of work up the courage to make the call and actually come in. So um, hard to reach population and, and, you know, underserved in general. Well, and I think that in our culture, we kind of give the message, uh, whether it's domestic violence or anything. It, it, we're very. This is one of my my pet peeves, is that we live in a in a culture that seems to say, oh, okay, so you had something bad happen. Okay, move on. Don't dwell on it. Forgive, forget. You know, let go. Uh, right. Move forward. You know. Well, that's a lot easier said than done. You know. And so well, I, I think that we get the message that you know we. We need to just move on. We need to just forget it. We need to just not, you know, dwell on that. And so I would imagine that a lot of people, no matter what the trauma is, are dealing with that, that somehow or other they're deficient if they actually seek help for something. I think that um, I think that we're, we're starting to move the needle a little bit on that. Um, you know, the VA has been... Um, doing some remarkable things in terms of outreach to veterans and after, you know, after post-deployment and a lot more, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of groups, veteran-based groups that are stepping up and talking about, um, you know, how when you've been through something horrible, you know, it's sort of expected that you may have some emotional issues after that. I think that IPV is sort of at the end of the line in terms of that um, public awareness campaign. And part of it is that, you know, culturally, we don't want to acknowledge that sometimes uh, romantic relationships become kind of a cauldron of hell uh, when <laughs> one partner is abusive. You yeah. know, that, that IPV is about domination and control. And so one partner is dominating and controlling the other. And that, you know, we as a culture really, we don't want to think about that. You know, we don't want to think that that happens. And, you know, I mean, in much the same way, we don't want to think about um, child abuse, you know. And, and so when that happens, everyone is always like, oh, my goodness. Um, but in actual fact, it's it's way more common than what, what we'd like to acknowledge. So I don't think that, um, I think that we're starting to see some change in terms of just awareness that really horrible things happen. Um, It's not a bad idea to go and get a mental health checkup at some point. You know, sometimes the process of recovery happens more smoothly than others, and, and if it doesn't, there's no 
There's no shame in reaching out for help. We have wonderful treatments at this point for um, most of the conditions that uh, trauma can leave in its aftermath. So that's my little, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I, th- I think that's, uh, that I, but I do believe that that, I, I think what you point out is perfectly accurate. So, okay. So let's go back to the types of trauma the Im- or the types of impacts from trauma. And you pointed out that it's kind of hard, you know, because there's not a lot of cross uh, study uh, of the different types of trauma, but from what you know, um, are the, would the the impacts be similar, say a war veteran or a domestic violence victim? Um, I, I'm not citing a specific study or even several studies when I answer this uh, because right. we don't have those, your we don't have those studies, right? Um, yeah. There's sort of top three mental health conditions that are uh, possible. Uh, Top three in terms of their prevalence are post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, major depressive disorder, which, you know, Joe on the street calls depression, and generalized anxiety disorder, which is a condition of um, elevated levels of worry and anxiety. And one thing we know about post-traumatic stress disorder is that Rarely does it occur alone. So typically PTSD comes along with um, other kinds of mental health conditions. So you might have post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, or you might have post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of generalized anxiety. So those are those are sort of the top three conditions that we're likely to see. Um, One thing we know when we think about intimate partner violence, um, many times, you know, you sort of said, you brought up very accurately that we're sort of collectively reluctant to talk about the mental health aftermath of um, domestic violence because, you know, it's a short step to saying, well, see, I knew she was crazy, right? But we know that that post-traumatic stress disorder in particular seems to increase the risk for re-victimization for a woman who's experienced domestic violence. So it becomes a whole lot different process when you start, you know, saying, well, you know, it's risky to talk about mental health issues after domestic violence. Well, it's just as risky not to talk about those conditions because they increase the likelihood of more bad romantic relationship stuff happening to her, Um, you know, another dose of domestic violence, another abusive partner. And personally, I think that when we realize that, you know, many times because domestic violence happens inside the home, it doesn't happen out in a parking lot or intersection of two major streets, but it happens inside the home. And so many times children are watching this. Children are are exposed to domestic violence, which is one of the ways, not the only way, but it's one of the ways that this sort of cycle of violence continues from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. So it does matter that we start thinking about mental health issues as risk factors for additional victimization and as sort of barriers that get in the way of survivors building a healthy lifestyle for themselves. 
Okay. All right. So we've identified PTSD, major depression, and generalized anxiety as typical fallouts from major trauma, from trauma as we have defined it. It's interesting to me because the Americans for Disabilities Act has three um, psychiatric conditions. I, I object to them using that word, but I suppose technically it's correct. Um, three psychiatric conditions that qualifies a person as being disabled. And mm-hmm. they list PTSD, chronic depression, and acute anxiety. Are we talking yep. the same thing? <laughs> well, you know, language. Language is critical here. Um, and what you're talking about is sort of legally, if somebody wants to file a disability claim, these are the three mental health conditions that fall under that umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. From a mental health standpoint, we know that major depressive disorder does tend to be chronic. It might remit, but it's likely to come back. And we know that acute anxiety is often used as a synonym for generalized anxiety disorder. But I'm not speaking for the people that wrote that legal standard, if that's what they had in mind, right? Um, I would think if, if somebody came to me and said, do I qualify for disability, and a report indicated that these were the mental health conditions, that that would be helpful for their disability claim. No. But no. Well, and, that, yeah, and I know you don't represent the ADA. It, it just struck me that, you know, those are so similar. Um, and, um, yeah, okay. All right, let's move on. So we've got these three things, PTSD, major depression, and generalized anxiety. How does a victim of trauma know that they have those? Um, I wouldn't expect a trauma survivor to necessarily know if any of those conditions were present. Um, You really need to sort of reach out for help from um, somebody who has, um, you know, mental health training who can do an assessment, you know, Mm -hmm. much like... um, if you have an accident and your arm is all swollen up, you're not necessarily going to say, well, I think I broke my arm. You're going to say, mm, I'm going to go get an x-ray, right? So okay. I think that, um, you know, I think that we don't want to move the responsibility onto um, an IPV survivor to sort of, oh, figure it out on her own. Many times women are experiencing symptoms that really get in the way. So they may be having horrible sleep problems. They may be feeling um, just a constant sense of um, anxiety or guilt or some other kind of negative feelings all the time. They may find themselves like super jumpy, you know, so the phone rings and they startle way too much, you know, Um, or they may find that they're avoiding things that remind them of the abuse. Um, in the depression arena, they may feel sad, down, hopeless a whole lot um, and find they're sleeping like way many more hours than what other people sleep or their eating has changed, their interest in doing stuff is just gone. So, you know, somebody will say, hey, you want to go to the movie? The reaction is meh. You know, it's not, there's no real interest there. So, um, you know, if, if symptoms are happening for somebody and they're starting to impact, you know, quality of life and 
ability to get up and go off and do your job or raise your children or any other parts of life that that we all try to engage in, then it's it's time to reach out. It's time to get some help, you know, find out what's going on. Well, you know, and, and those that that's a whole set of problems as well, not just recognizing that you need help, but actually acquiring help, paying for help, getting it. And even if you're well insured, sometimes, you know, there's a shortage of people who are trained in this area. So that's a whole different ballgame. And if we have time, we can get into that. But are there other, you said PTSD, depression, anxiety, those are the most common ones. Are there other um, effects of trauma that are frequent? I think you're asking wonderful questions, and I want your listeners to know that I did not give you a list of questions beforehand, so (laughs) I'm just (laughs) grateful. I'm like, wow, she's really asking great questions. One of the things that we know, one of the things that we know, if you step back and think for a minute about intimate partner violence, is that um, abusers will isolate um, a woman from friends and family, and I'm I'm cognizant that victims are not all women, but right. women tend well, to yes. be, yeah, women tend to be disproportionate. Women are more yes. likely to be victims of IPV than men are. So, Correct. at any rate, perpetrators. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my pet peeves, and it's interesting because that I feel so strongly about what you're saying because my father was an abused man, um, but it's different, and the fact is that the majority of our victims are female. So, you know, I I think that, you know, it behooves us to acknowledge that men are also victims and certainly they need treatment and help. And I don't, you know, uh, that's, that's fine. That's terrific. But um, as far as sheer numbers, we're looking at women. So. Right. Right. And the psychological effects of trauma are um, women are at higher risk for psychological effects following traumas, any kind of traumas. So, you know, when we start to think about mental health issues and need and that kind of stuff, the female part of the population is, um, I think, uh, you know, there's larger numbers of women who have emotional issues as a result of domestic violence. Um, but we know, back back to, like, your wonderful question that we're sort of wandering around I'm doing a good job of not answering. You know, you said, what are some other processes? And we That's know right. that. I have notes. <laughs> okay. We know that um, abusers tend to isolate their victims. And so when a woman is out of a, re- a abusive relationship, um, one of the things that can really, really help in terms of her mental health functioning is social support. Right, so having supportive friends and relatives and work colleagues and that kind of thing, and yet we also know that for DV survivors, that's kind of a two-edged sword. So one of the things that we've been looking at in my lab is sort of the issue of um, social processes following intimate partner violence. Like, how does that work? What are the factors that May um, may help us understand why women are perhaps reluctant to seek social support from other people, um, and that I think you know when I think about buffering factors, things that may help shore a woman up so she doesn't develop mental health problems. Social support is kind of our number one our number one candidate for 
a really important buffering process. So we started, we have in the last probably eight years been thinking a whole lot and doing work on social support and what kinds of things may um, get in the way of a woman seeking, you know, supportive people in her world. Okay, are you going to elaborate on that? (laughs) I was waiting for you to ask another good question. Um, Sure, (laughs) sure. Um, One of the one of the things that we know, and this is somewhat universal across all trauma survivors, is that there are what we call post-trauma thoughts that are pretty negative that often are associated with negative mental health outcomes. And so to so to kind of be, you know, scientists have to classify things. So those negative thoughts can fall into three categories. Negative thoughts about yourself, negative thoughts about the world, and self-blame. And so we know from some of the work that's come out of my lab that um, negative thoughts in all three of those domains tend to be um, inversely associated with the amount of support that people perceive. So the more of those negative thoughts you have, the lower levels of thought of support that you will perceive from family and friends. And that is, those relationships obviously do show uh, a significant association with post-traumatic stress disorder. So one of the things that seems to get in the way is this collection of negative post-trauma thoughts. You know, I, I, I'm not very competent. Uh, the world is a dangerous place. Um, I'm to blame for what happened, those kinds of thoughts. Um, I should should have done things differently. I should have, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I see that. Um, Also, one of the, in in my reading about uh, PTSD is um, the notion, uh, which kind of surprised me, the notion that you're not going to have a long life. Have you, is is that just uh, from an article I read, or is, is that something that you have seen as well? Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting little side trip for a moment, and that sense of foreshortened future used to be uh, part of the you know the symptom list for PTSD, um, and when the symptom criteria were revised, you know every now and then we we see our diagnostic and our classification approach change. Presumably, sort of our science does more work, and then we. We refine those symptom sets. When our symptom set was revised, that symptom um, got changed substantially. So it kind of got folded in with the sort of negative perceptions about yourself. And part of that is that, yes, some trauma survivors will say, um, I'm not going to live a long life or I'm not going to live past 40. Uh, You know, they will have a specific prediction about how they're future will be shortened. Um, but that's not, um, it, it doesn't happen so often as to be one of those cardinal signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. We do hear, so we do a, hear a that. Less, it's a less seen uh, side effect, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. Outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
right. And you uh, know, it makes it makes sense when you talk with, for example, veterans who have typically been combat exposed veterans who have been exposed to, you know, life threatening kinds of events. You can we can all kind of say, Okay, I can understand, you know, I live through I live through the war, but I may not live to be 80. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that when we think about survivors of other kinds of trauma, like sexual assault or domestic violence, that it's not such an intuitive um, piece of post-trauma functioning. Okay. Um, So, okay, so we talked about some of this this negative um, uh, post-trauma thoughts. Any other lesser um, prevalent uh, side effect or effect from trauma? Oh, there's there's lots of them. Um, we know in the domestic violence area that shame exerts a really powerful role for many women who've experienced domestic violence. And when I say shame, I mean I'm referring to um, sort of feeling badly about yourself, right? So not feeling badly like, gee, I wish I'd never accepted a date from him, but feeling badly like I'm a bad person. Um, I don't have anything to offer. You know, I'm embarrassed of me might be another way to talk about shame. And so we know that shame can be, extraordinarily um, powerful for domestic violence survivors. And shame can play kind of an important role in turning away from support from other people. Um, And, you know, it's that two-edged sword because that support from other people, helpful support from other people can be, um, I don't know, it can be restorative, it can be helpful. So. You know, we've been looking more in, in different ways at the role of shame and how shame um, sets people up to do things like turn away from other people or if a woman is has experienced emotional abuse, how does shame impact in terms of her likelihood um, of having post-traumatic stress disorder? And, you know, some early work that came out of my lab showed that shame can really kind of magnify um, the negative trauma experience for women who experienced um, emotional abuse in the context of intimate partner violence. And uh, so far there's a parallel between uh, combat veterans with PTSD and um, the symptoms that you're describing for uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence victims are all the are uh-huh. these symptoms that you're describing are they the symptoms of PTSD um uh, at least the way I work kind of we pull from the classification the current classification manual and then we think about you know what are Processes, you know, symptoms are just that. It's a symptom list, a second laundry list. So how do we understand active psychological processes that may um, account for worsening of symptoms or, um, yeah. So 
when when I start talking about shame, for example, yeah, shame is one of those, you know, negative emotions that people may have after a trauma. We're finding that shame is actually possibly uh, more than just a symptom, that it's a, it's a process. And that as a process, it sort of motivates um, that social withdrawal and it may motivate um, other psychological processes like rumination. You know, so if I sit and I think about all the bad things that happened to me over and over and over and over and over again, and I am not connected with supportive people, I am going to be more likely to end up with uh, kind of some mental health aftermath sorts of things. I may have nightmares. I may have just a, a really hard time sleeping. Um, I certainly will feel sort of more... Um, embarrassed the more I think about it. So, you know, we're starting to think about what are some of the processes that um, that differentiate between folks who have a trauma and seem to put their lives back together okay and folks that have a trauma and struggle afterwards. Okay. And you're seeing, or what I've heard you say, is that uh, social support can be a big factor in that, those, the difference between those two. Yeah, social support can operate as like a a buffer. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, if you think about think about the model that's kind of implicit in what I'm talking about, something something traumatic and horrible happens to you. There are processes that uh, help us function, that build us up, that lift us up, and help us. And then there's processes that don't work to our advantage. There's things that increase the likelihood that we'll struggle afterwards. So social support is one of those buffering or lifting up or protective, however you want to frame it, kinds of factors that we know that when people have supportive, helpful people in their lives, that they do better, right? Following a trauma, they do better. Um, That makes sense, right? So I have somebody I can talk to about what happened and somebody that can will call me up and say, you know, let's get out of the house and go have uh, some tea, right? So, you know, social, having people around us who are helpful and who show um, just through their actions some understanding is helpful. How is that different from a person who, for example, might have a large social network of friends and family, but they don't get it. Um, they don't understand what she's been through. They don't want to hear about it. Um, is that the same as not having any social support whatsoever as far as repercussions from the trauma? Well, there's an enormous literature on that, and I will spare you the lecture. I'll just give you kind of the short answer to that. I am a college professor, which means that, you know, I'm like, oh, let's go through three lectures on that, but no, let's not. Um, when we think about social support, we can think about, like, number of people in your life, right? How many friends do you have kind of questions? Or we can think about perceptions of being supported. And we know from lots of years of research that the perception of being supported is the more important aspect of that. So if I say I have 300 friends and you say how many of them get it, and I say one, that one is the critical piece, right? 
Mm-hmm. She's not that supported if she only has one friend that gets it. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not it's not a numbers game when it comes to perceptions of support. It's it's you know I have somebody that I could talk to if I really needed to, and they would understand, and they wouldn't say unsupportive things like, "Why didn't you just leave him sooner?" Yeah, yeah, or you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it. Um, yeah, let it go, move on. <laughs> right. That's one of my favorites. People go through these horrible, horrible traumas for years, and and people will literally tell them, you know, I, I have a friend who was widowed after a long, a lengthy, happy marriage. And within three months, people were like, okay, you know, you've got to let this go. You've got to move on. Time to start dating. Time to, you know. <laughs> I was thinking, my gosh, she was married for like 30-some years, and... Really? Yeah. People really think that in three months she can let that go. So she wasn't receiving support from those people at all. She was receiving no, just the opposite. Not. Of course yeah. not. Right. And so if you asked her about her perceptions of social support at that point, the answer that she gave you would have been, you know, her perceptions of, of how supported she felt would have told you a whole lot more than how many friends do you have. Yeah, because right. yeah. she, she was very oh, social. She had a lot of people coming in and out, a lot of people sending cards, hundreds of people at the funeral, you know. Um, but <laughs> as far as that support, it, it just wasn't there. So earlier on, we talked about um, seeking treatment, how treatment can help with these kinds of things. How accessible is treatment? How? Let me rephrase the question. How how many therapists really know how to treat PTSD, especially when we're talking about domestic violence or intimate partner violence, PTSD? Um, you can't just open the phone book. Let's just start with that, right? You can't just open the phone book. If When I talk to a tr- – I, I get emails from trauma survivors all over the country and they're like, I live in fill-in-the-blank. I live in Dayton, or I live in Bozeman, Montana, or I live in, it doesn't really matter. You know, how do I find a, a trauma therapist? Um, what you want to do is you want to look for a therapist who has training in one of the evidence-based forms of treatment for PTSD. And there are some... Um, national organizations that have Find a Therapist um, services on their websites. Um, And those can be really helpful. So one of those is the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive um, Therapies, ABCT. Um, And they actually have a, they, they call it Find a Therapist, and you put in, you know, your location and how many miles you're willing to travel. Um, and what you're looking for help with, and they will, you know, pull up names of people from their membership who have training in addressing that specific kind of problem. Um, There is another group called the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, which is abbreviated ISTSS. Okay. And... I'm trying to go online while I'm doing this, and I know better than to try to do two things at once because everything <laughs> comes to a grinding well, halt. But ISPSS, well, you're looking, I, I will ask you. 
I'll ask you a question though, because the last one you mentioned has uh, is, is the uh, International Society for the Traumatic for Traumatic Stress Studies. When we started our conversation, you, we said that there was a difference between trauma and stressful events, and yet here they put stress and trauma in the same category, and then that's mm-hmm. confusing me. I'm sorry. You know, the, the trauma world, by definition, is confusing. It's not like we try. It just is. So the ISCSS group um, originally evolved to uh, represent It's a mixture of both scientists and, and clinicians, providers, um, who were interested in working with people who had gone through stressful and highly stressful kinds of events. Remember, PTSD wasn't introduced into the mental health world until 1980. So, Oh, really? To, I, yeah, so, I was, my understanding was that they talked about it after World War II. Well, we didn't talk about PTSD. We talked about uh, soldier's heart, and we talked about um, psychasthenia, and we had all these other, you know, all these, all these other labels. Uh, PTSD um, was championed and pushed into our diagnostic nomenclature as a result of some really pretty amazing um, advocacy by Vietnam veterans who had come home from war with horrendous um, emotional issues and, you know, approached the VA saying, hey, I need help. And the VA is like, well, no, it's not in our it's not in our diagnostic system. So, you know, ISCSS has been around for I don't know quite a while, and is a home for people who study trauma, and for people who study, for example, um, prolonged bereavement. At, you know, thinking of your friend, prolonged bereavement after a long-term relationship. So, it it's a place where you can learn about um, extremely stressful life events and how to work with that psychologically and trauma and how to work with that psychologically. So not trying to, their goal is not, they're not on earth to, to be confusing, but that is the nature <laughs> of that group. Well, I'm easily confused. I, sh- I should explain <laughs> uh, that. I don't think so. I don't think so. So ISTSS would be another place to look. ABCT would be a place to look, and there may be, um, there's another group called ADAA, um, Anxiety and Depressive Disorders of America, Association of America. I'm messing up the name, but if you put in ADAA, you can probably find that, and I believe they have um, another, you know, find a therapist service. Each of those only provides services for the professional membership who, so like if you're a member of ISTSS and not ABCT, your name will only appear on the ISTSS, you know, providers list, right? Sure, yeah. Um, The other thing that we have to throw in is, um, you know, once you've found a therapist, which is not necessarily an easy thing, um, then you have to pay for the therapist. Uh, We all have to pay for the rent, and we all have to buy groceries, so I don't begrudge anyone, you know, money that they charge and fees that they charge. However, not all insurance companies pay for it. Some people are not insured. It, it's, it can be a real struggle, and I know a lot of people will just say, no, it's too, it's adding 
to the stress. It's adding to the right. trauma, trying to find someone to help with the trauma and stress. Um, and I don't know what I, we can do about that, you know. Yeah, it, it's complicated. And one thing that I know is that um, domestic violence survivors, by and large, tend to be underemployed. So they may have mm-hmm. a four-year college degree, but they may end up in a job where they're, you know, ed- they're they're underemployed for their educational level. So financial issues are typically very, very prevalent in um, women who've experienced intimate partner violence. One thing that people fa- fairly often are unaware of is that any university that has a psychology department that trains tomorrow's clinical psychologists typically will have a low-fee psychology clinic. Now, I almost can hear the next question, which is, well, who wants to be treated by a doctoral student who's brand new? And how do I say this? They're some of our best therapists. I'll just say it that way. Um, Sometimes the people who don't have the training and who haven't built up calluses are the best people to give you help. Well, and not only that, but like doctoral students in training tend to be very closely supervised. So it's not like they're, you know, just go off and do something and come back in six months and tell me how your client's doing. No, they tend to be very closely supervised. And, you know, the people who are selected to become tomorrow's generations of clinical psychologists tend to be hugely bright, hugely motivated, wanting to help people. So, you know, if if all else fails, you know, think about what are some of the cities around you? Do they have a university that's training the next generation of clinical psychologists? Um, if you live in a remote area, uh, one of my former students, for example, is on the faculty at the University of Wyoming. And Wyoming is a an area where people are um, spread, right? So there's only a handful of high population urban areas. Um, But I know that the training clinic at the University of Wyoming in the psychology department does a lot of teletherapy. So they've devised, they're evolving some ways to be able to provide therapy for people who live 300 miles away because that's a prohibitive distance. You can't expect somebody to come in once a week for therapy. So usually training clinics are uh, much lower fee, um, and that often can make the difference between if somebody can afford to get help or not. Okay. Well, and one, you mentioned the teletherapy, the online therapy or the remote therapy. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. Have you seen it be effective in situations with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, or is the jury still out? The science is building. And one of the things that I think is is important, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do uh, remote therapy. Some of it is done video. Some of it is done with, like, online programs and then uh, once-a-week phone call. I mean, there's there's a number of different approaches that have been um, used. So, the you know, the science is so far promising. It says, you know, at first, I thought people aren't going to go for this. You know, people are going to find this <laughs> off-putting, right? I want to sit in a room with somebody. I'm old school. I still have a paper 
calendar that I <laughs> write events. <laughs> so I want to sit. Yeah. <laughs> so I want. I want to sit in a room with somebody. But yeah. most of the universe doesn't have a paper schedule. Most of the universe is much more um, used to using technology in ways that are helpful. So the science well, is and actually the, and the very younger, promising. Younger people, I find. Um, are are uncomfortable with all of that paper stuff and sitting in the same room. You know, they're more comfortable, you know, using their thumbs and communicating via their telephone, which I'm sure that they would be shocked to know that you can actually speak into a telephone. Um, but they uh, they tend to be very comfortable with that, that format. So I think it's uh, somewhat a, a generational kind of thing, what you're comfortable uh, comfortable with. And it's nice that we have all the options for people. Yeah, Gail, I'm looking at our clock, and and we only have a couple of minutes left. Did I leave out anything that you think is crucial that we should share about trauma after, or um, uh, the impact of of trauma? I think we've had a lot of really important points today, Heather, and you've asked great questions um, that you know I think are the kinds of questions that um, if an IPV survivor is listening to the show or the questions that she's going to have in her head. So I really appreciate the sensitivity that you've shown in putting this together. Um, so no, I think well, I think we've we've hit a lot of the high points. Okay. Well, and if there's somebody in, near Memphis who wants to participate in one of your studies, who is there a place that they could contact someone? You bet. They give me a call um, at area code nine zero one six seven eight three nine seven three. My um, clinic is called the Athena Project, and everything we do is free. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Are you into the the remote um, uh, therapy at this point, or are you just doing uh, in-person stuff? We do in-person stuff, because remember that paper schedule that I rely on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm remembering that. As soon as I said that, I thought, wait a minute, this is a lady who still has a paper calendar. And I'm laughing because I'm sitting here with my paper calendar in front of me. But at least I've segued. I've also got my calendar on my phone, but I'm suspicious of technology. And so I want my paper calendar as well as the electronic one because what if I lose my phone? What if I, you know... So, well, I have so, left my paper my paper day timer thing on airplanes, in taxi cabs, at restaurants, and it always gets returned. So yeah, nobody wants good. it. Yeah. Yeah, but but they'll 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 keep your phone. <laughs> Gail, Dr. Gail Beck, thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand trauma, the impact of trauma, uh, and mental health after uh, some pretty life-shaking events. And uh, I appreciate it, and I hope that as you continue with your research, you'll come and join us on the show again sometime. Thank you for inviting me to participate today. Good. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Come join us again. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.